to Voices of the Belt and Road podcast, brought to you by the Belt and Road Advisory, your professional advisors on all matters concerning the Belt and Road Initiative. Voices of the Belt and Road is our flagship podcast, and with each episode, we'll hear the personal stories of people who are part of the Belt and Road Initiative. The aim of this podcast is to demystify the initiative by interviewing a broad array of people whose lives are impacted day in and day out by the world's largest cross-border trade initiative and infrastructure build-out. On this podcast, in addition to university researchers, think tank experts, and policymakers, you can also hear from business people, workers, and countless others involved in the Belt and Road. You'll hear people tell their own personal stories in their own languages, because at the end of the day, the Belt and Road Initiative is changing people's lives, and we want you to hear it from them. Please enjoy this week's podcast, and thanks for tuning in. Hi everyone, I'm your host Greg Stetz and this is Voices of the Belt and Road podcast. In today's episode we'll focus on the growing role of Japan within the Belt and Road Initiative and its cooperation with China on joint projects in the Belt and Road countries. With me is Stephen Nagy, a distinguished fellow at the Asia-Pacific Foundation of Canada and a professor in the Department of Politics and International Studies at the International Christian University Tokyo. Previously, Stephen taught at the University of Hong Kong and cooperated with Global Institute for Asian Regional Integration of Waseda University. It's a pleasure to have you with us. Thanks very much, Greg. It's great to be here. Please tell us a bit about your background. What is your interest in the Belt and Road Initiative? Well, I, I initially did my MA and PhD studies here at Waseda University in Tokyo, and then I moved to Hong Kong and I taught at the Chinese University of Hong Kong, uh, mostly working on um, Japanese foreign policy, but also looking at the uh, interactions between China and Japan. So from that point on, I I started to engage in a project that was related to um, Chinese perceptions of Japanese foreign policy, in particular under the Abe administration. And in my visits to China to talk to uh, Chinese policymakers and Chinese scholars, um, the topic of the Belt Road Initiative came up because the scholars were interested in did Japan have a, a grand strategy? And we also talked about, did China have a grand strategy? And this was really interesting because the Belt Road Initiative did come up. And this is what sparked my interest because I think some of the scholars talked about the Belt Road Initiative in terms of just an economic project, a development project, uh, a project that was meant to deliver global public goods to um countries along the BRI, where others looked at it in a more sanguine way. They looked at it in terms of geoeconomics or economic statecraft. And even, other, even others saw it as a, a grand Chinese grand strategy to create a, you know, economic hierarchy um, with Beijing at the center and, and participating countries in descending orders along that hierarchy. So there was a lot of variety. And this compelled me to start to look into the initiative and think about what would be the implications, not only for Japan, but for regional countries um, and participants in the Belt Road Initiative. So you've been based in Japan, closely investigating Sino-Japanese relations for many years now. How is the Belt and Road Initiative viewed in Japan, on media, in general public, uh, in business and governmental circles? Is it perceived as an opportunity or a threat, or maybe it's hardly perceived at all? Well, I think that the Belt Road Initiative is is in the minds of ordinary Japanese and public and policymakers and academia, but it also it comes in the backdrop of I think uh, the soured relations between Japan and China since 
2010 when a Chinese uh, fisherman um, collided with Japanese Coast Guard vessels around the disputed territories in the East China Sea. Uh, since that period of time, the relations have been locked in a frozen state. We haven't had top-level dialogue between the two countries. And um, there was a strong sense that um, there was uh, an increased level of anti-Japanese sentiment in China, which, uh, from the Japanese point of view, really made anything coming out of China quite negative. And I think that included the Belt Road Initiative. But that being said, there's been a lot of talk about the Belt Road Initiative over the past um, two years, as um, President Xi and Prime Minister Abe made efforts to re-engage relations and try to pull their uh, relationships back to a so-called normal state of separating politics and economics. And during that time, um, the Chinese, I think, actively courted the Japanese to join the BRI to get their support. And the Japanese were looking at the BRI and what kinds of opportunities were there and what kinds of risks. In terms of academics and, and governments, I think the, they, they do look for the opportunity there because Japan has a long, ex, lots of experience in terms of building infrastructure, in particular in Southeast Asia. And they've built very high quality infrastructure in a transparent process. And they've also have a, a legacy of building human capital. And that's really important. That's this comprehensive development strategy, not only building roads, but building those societies so they can be sustainable and and left a, a strong human capacity to uh, bolster those societies. Now, the Japanese are looking as if the Belt Road Initiative projects have a similar tone. And at this stage, I think their assessment is that nice roads are being built, but it's not leaving the human capital behind. It's not building that human capital. And that, for the Japanese point of view, means that the sustainability of the investment may be challenged. Um, I do think that the Japanese... Uh, government and academics are also interested in the digital corridor of the BRI. And what I mean by that is this, this you know, the linking of a, a closed intranet system and what does that mean for commerce? What does that mean for privacy? Um, and I think that's an area that Japanese are somewhat uncomfortable with, both from a privacy standpoint, but importantly, I think that they're interested, they're concerned that what does a closed intranet system on the BRI mean for, you know, the bifurcation of production networks, um, how will this affect global production chains, uh, will it increase transi transaction costs? So there's some very practical cons concerns on the Japanese side, and then some very um, you know, concerns related to different political systems. And what about general perception across the media and in the public? Is Belt and Road a thing that is being discussed? Yes, I think that um, in the mass media, what we see um, on the conservative side of the newspapers, there's a lot of criticism of the Belt Road Initiative. But on the more liberal side, um, for example, in the Asai Shimbun, they do look at the BRI as a potential opportunity for um, Japan and China to cooperate, to develop communication, and to create a, a more functional relationship that's not based on competition or threats, as Prime Minister Abe mentioned in his visit to Beijing in October 26, but to focus on cooperation and finding areas where that they can work together and use their synergy and their comparative advantages to benefit each other. Amongst ordinary Japanese people, though, I think that there's, there's a lot of misunderstanding about the Belt Road Initiative or just no understanding. And the reason is, I think, partly because of the way the Belt Road Initiative is presented in the press, but partly because of how the Belt Road Initiative has been 
unrolled over the past five years. It used to be the One Belt, uh, One Road initiative. Now it's the Belt Road initiative. Now we have uh, land corridors and digital corridors and maritime corridors. You know, for the average Tanaka or Suzuki, this is a little bit complicated and, and you know, outside their everyday um, knowledge set. So Japan and China are already discussing a couple of projects under the Belt and Road umbrella. And also Prime Minister Abe's visit to Beijing highlighted even more possible areas of cooperation. So what projects are being discussed and what have been agreed upon so far? So what we've seen over the past uh, year and a half or two years is that uh, Beijing has been actively courting the Japanese to participate in BRI-related projects. And we've seen some reticence on the Japanese side due to transparency issues and other issues between the two states. Um, but what they've done is they've held uh, what we call a joint public-private committee on economic cooperation. And this is basically government organizations and, and private uh, businesses looking at different areas that they can cooperate. And based on these meetings, what they've come up with is uh, several projects that they're interested in engaging in. And one of them is building railways in Thailand, in particular, building high-speed railways to uh, Thailand's uh, three main airports, the Dongmyeong, the Sunavarna Bumi, and the Yutapau. Now, this is important because um, these are part of Thailand's eastern economic corridor, and uh, it's uh, part of Thailand's own domestic development strategy, but it resonates quite well with a chance for Japan and China to cooperate in these areas. Now, some important take-homes that I think we should understand here that the plans for the high-speed railway haven't been laid out concretely yet, so they're a process in discussion. So it's more of a proposal of how we can work forward and uh, where the two states can work synergistically to help Thailand build these smart cities. Another area of cooperation that the, the, the two states have been talking about is logistics on China-Europe uh, rail links and offering funding through government financial institutions. Now they would like to find some more opportunities to cooperate in the logistic pathways there. Now, there's some other important areas that they've also been discussing, and these came up after the 14th Annual Tokyo-Beijing Forum last month. And in particular, we had a 1,000 Japanese uh, businessmen joining the signing ceremony there, and they agreed upon 60 projects. So I think that's quite significant. It's demonstrating that both Japanese and Chinese firms are interested in cooperation, and their leaders, uh, Prime Minister Zoaba and President Xi, is also interested in uh, cooperating in various projects. Now, these ones, they use specifically the term third country market. So that means countries outside Japan and China. And they've been specifically focusing on the construction of petroleum refinement plants in Kazakhstan and solar power generation facilities in the United Arab Emirates. Now, these, I think, are really important. They're, they're something that we should focus on because um, both Japan and, and China are energy-poor countries. And by building petroleum refinement plants in Kazakhstan, it offers both countries the opportunity to, to strengthen their access to resources. And the same is true, I think, with solar power generation in the United Emirates. It allows them to help develop the, the local infrastructure in the United Arab Emirates, help in the development processes there, and they may be able to leverage that for future cooperation. So it seems that a lot is yet to happen, but can we already distinguish three most important Japanese actors that are engaged in BRI? So when we think about the BRI, it's going to be the Japanese Business Federation, so it's called the Keidan Ren in Japanese, and they're very interested in participating in the BRI from the standpoint of 
they've have a vast experience in terms of infrastructure building in uh, Southeast Asia, and I think that they feel that they have a comparative advantage that would benefit um, Japanese businesses, but benefit the benefactors um, along the BRI. So that's one. A second. JBIC, so the Japanese Bank for International Cooperation. So it's involved in some kind of funding for um, projects uh, that are related to infrastructure. Um, so funding is important and how that funding is unro- unrolled and what kinds of regulations and how transparent they are is also important. Third, uh, I think that uh, the Japanese government themselves are very interested in in having a role in terms of the BRI. So they want to make sure that the BRI is something that um, develops in a way that uh, benefits Japan and won't put Japan at at a disadvantage. So they're very much interested in promoting uh, transparency, uh, rule-based bidding so that Japanese businesses, but also other businesses can engage in in the BRI uh, BRI projects. Um, And they want to ensure that the BRI is really a a win-win development. And and that's something that um, Japan is interested in. I think South Korea is interested. And many countries within within the region are interested in that it's actually a win-win for uh, all participants along the BRI. Okay, so there clearly is an interest from the Japanese side to get involved in BRI in some form. But how does Prime Minister Abe and his government position involvement in the Belt and Road Initiative as a positive development, considering um, the historically strong ties with the United States? Is there some hedging going on, considering President Trump's administration's relationship with Japan? So what we've seen on the Japanese side, and in particular under the leadership of Prime Minister Abe, is that they've been engaged in discussions with the Chinese at the same time as they've unveiled this idea of a free and open Indo-Pacific, as well as other initiatives such as the Asian-African Growth Corridor, which is an infrastructure cooperation project with India. They've also worked with the United States, Australia, um, to engage in some infrastructure development in Southeast Asia. So what we do see here is is some hedging um, that Japan's willing to discuss the possibilities to engage in uh, BRI cooperation. At the same time, they would like to um, strengthen rule-based behavior within the region, uh, and that's on land but also in the maritime domain. And they're doing that by working with countries that um, are uh, like-minded, so Australia, the United States. I think that they are courting actively India, but they're also working with their strategic partnerships in Southeast Asia, such as Vietnam, Philippines, Malaysia, and Indonesia. The idea here is Japan's no longer a great power. It's a middle power, or a, a, a hyper middle power, and that it needs to invest in international institutions and rule of law to ensure that it can maintain its interest as, uh, as Japan becomes more asymmetrically disadvantaged on the Trump factor, I think that Japan and Prime Minister Abe has been uh, relatively effective at handling uh, some of the more mercurial behavior by the Trump administration. As Trump pulled out of the TPP, uh, Prime Minister Abe um, continued to push the um, Comprehensive Progressive Trans-Pacific Partnership. He also signed the uh, EU-Japan uh, e- uh, EPA, Economic Partnership. And both of these relationships are meant to be multilateral uh, trade organizations that are meant to uh, boast multilateralism. Uh, Japan's also working with China t- to sign the uh, Regional Comprehensive Economic Partnership. So what we see on the, uh, on the Jap- Japan side is engagement 
in all directions, but also at the same time trying to maintain strong relationships with uh, like-minded countries like the United States, Australia, and others. What is the particular interest of the Japanese side in the Belt and Road Initiative? What does Japan have to win from BRI? Well, Japan faces many structural issues that that um, China's going to face in the next uh, 10 years. And the biggest one, of course, is an aging population and a shrinking uh, tax base. The only way for Japan to maintain a sustainable economy, to continue to grow, to continue to enjoy the prosperity that does, means that it has to engage economically with partners within the region. Now, it's doing this through the three trade agreements that I mentioned, um, but I think the BRI is also a very important initiative for the Japanese in terms of ensuring that Japanese businesses um, are making money. And one of the best ways to make money is to participate in these large infrastructure initiatives. Um, And this is the largest infrastructure initiative in history. And Japanese businesses have a a, a tremendous amount to offer. Now, if Japanese businesses can uh, successfully win tenders along the BRI, that capital that they produce can be returned back to Japan to um, charge the Japanese economy and and ensure that the economy remains uh, sustainable and prosperity remains high in the Japanese context. And again, I think that's why um, Japan is engaging in the BRI, and they're going to try to carve out opportunities so that they can continue to uh, maintain economic stability and sustainability going forward. So looking 10 to 15 years forward, what are the best and the worst case scenarios for Japan's involvement in the Belt and Road Initiative? Are there any issues in particular that can undermine the cooperation on the Belt and Road projects? Well, I think uh, from the Japanese point of view, what they're looking for is what's happening in China. So will the Chinese economy continue to slow down? Will the Chinese uh, government be able to continue to ensure that the, the Belt Road Initiative is financed at low enough levels so they can continue to grow and expand across um, Southeast Asia, South Central Asia. These are important issues for Japan. Um, Japan's also looking at how China's going to deal with some of its demographic issues. I say this because in the next 10 years, it's going to be about 350 million um, Chinese entering uh, retirement age. Um, in in, in a a system that doesn't have robust social welfare, how will the Chinese uh, fund these people? Will those funds come from the Belt Road Initiative budget or will it come from somewhere else? So the Japanese are very much looking at economic sustainability in the Chinese context. How will structural issues such as demography affect economic growth within the Chinese context? Um, They're also looking at the politics within within China and how stable uh, China will be going forward. And these are the, the barometers or the litmus test for Japan to either invest more deeply in the BRI or to continue, continue to hedge their bets or to um, find other strategies. At this particular time, I think that Japan is really tethering themselves to international institutions and other like-minded countries to focus on rule-based behavior, both in the terrestrial and maritime domain. At the same time, they're trying to ensure that they don't lose out opportunities. In 10 to 15 years, uh, um, Japan will also be a much older society, a much smaller society. So it's going to continue to have to find ways to uh, bolster economic growth, to maintain its own social social welfare systems as an aging population continues. And the BRI does present that opportunity. Now, in the best case scenario, 
in both ca- in both countries, uh, there's stability. Uh, the BRI continues to grow. Transparency in- transparency increases, and we see more collaboration and cooperation rather than competition. Um, in the worst case scenario, I think that the Japanese are concerned about some kind of fiscal crisis within the Chinese contest that uh, makes uh, financing the BRI impossible to continue, and how that uh, fiscal crisis may affect not only financing the BRI but their economic growth uh, and their economic relations. Stephen, thank you very much for all your insights on Sino-Japanese relations related to BRI. Thank you very much for being with us. It's my pleasure. Hope to do it again. this week's Voices of the Belt and Road podcast. If you want to learn more about the Belt and Road Initiative, check out our website at beltandroad.ventures. That's Belt and Road, one word, no spaces, and dot ventures, V-E-N-T-U-R-E-S. On the website, you can subscribe to our weekly Belt and Road Bulletin and also follow our Belt and Road Advisory social media accounts on Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, and Instagram. That way, you'll always be up to date on what is happening on the Belt and Road. Thanks for tuning in and see you next week.